Judges 4, 4 through 9. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went to Barak to Kadesh. Thanks, Brooke. Good morning, Sound City. How are we doing? Good. Uh, excited to be with you here this morning. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not yet had a chance to meet. Uh, really glad to uh, have this opportunity to open the scriptures as we do every week. We are in Judges chapter 4. Uh, I've got a lot of ground to cover and not enough time to do it. And so if it's okay with you, I'd love to just pray and dive right into uh, this story for today. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that you give us your word to teach us, to instruct us, to correct us. And God, I pray that you do all of those things. One thing we don't want is to leave here today the same. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed. God, for my friends here today who are Christians, God, may we see Jesus and the glory of the gospel more clearly today. God, for anyone here today who is not yet a Christian, God, I pray you would show yourself to them, your grace to them, that they could experience your forgiveness, your love, your mercy. And may all that we do today be done for Jesus' honor and his glory. And everyone said... Amen. We're in uh, Judges chapter 4. We've had a couple of of prologue weeks, and then uh, now we're into the actual stories of the Judges. And you may have noticed, even just in our partial, we're going to cover more than was the scripture reading, but that partial reading uh, talked about God giving the glory in this particular story to a woman. And this particular chapter revolves around not just one, but two very uh, remarkable, important, even extraordinary women. And uh, when I was younger, uh, I always knew I wanted to grow up and be a dad. That was something I can remember even being a kid. I want to grow up. I want to be a dad. Um, I have one younger sister and one younger brother. And um, my, my brother and I would roughhouse and wrestle. My sister and I would roughhouse and wrestle too. And she actually punched harder than my brother. And, uh, but I just kind of assumed when I was a kid that I would grow up and I would be a dad and I would have boys and we would do boy things. And I was kind of, you know, the, the sort of stereotypical boy where every stick beca- became a sword or a gun. And uh, I was just kind of assumed I would grow up and have boys. My wife and I got married. We started our family and oh, a girl and then another girl and then a third girl. And then at that point, I'm like, I know what's happening. That fourth girl. And then we, uh, we started doing foster care and we had a teenage girl come and live with us. And I used to say, that God just knew how many women it would take in the house to balance out this much manliness. And, uh, (laughs) yeah, but apparently my masculinity is slipping because we've actually over the last seven or eight months, um, added not just one, but two boys into the family through foster care again. And they do things like go out to the garage and beat each other with ninja swords for like an hour and a half. And I'm like, this is, I forgot about this. I used to do that as a child, but raising girls has, has shaped me and changed me in many ways. And I would actually go so far as to say that having daughters has taught me things about the heart of God 
that I don't know that I would have learned otherwise. I am incredibly, profoundly thankful to get to be a dad to all of these um, just wonderful, smart, intelligent, articulate, like oh so much talking, articulate (laughs) young women. My wife is uh, just a smart, uh, intelligent, wonderful woman who is herself an amazing um, not only student, but teacher of the word of God who shapes me. And, and I'm, I'm just very thankful for the, the women that God has put into my life. My mother is a worship leader and, a, and, a, and a, a rally or a leader. I mean, she is just an amazing woman. So I've been surrounded by and shaped by some extraordinary women in my life. And I would say that not only our culture, but really across the world, most every human culture really struggles with its treatment of women. There are cultures in the Middle East, countries in the Middle East, where women can be put to death and executed publicly in the streets for breaking certain laws or committing certain sins. There are cultures in the, um, you know, Asia, like China specifically, where they are struggling to find daughters to marry their sons because gender-selective abortion is so widespread because no one wants to have a girl baby. They all want to have boy babies. In our own culture, we talk about equality of women, we talk about the value of women, and yet virtually every single uh, female pop star that's out there could also moonlight as a stripper. You can't watch any music videos anymore because in order to be an artist, you have to not only have a good voice, but you have to be willing to uh, parade yourself around as an object. So our culture is pretty hypocritical when it comes to treatment of women. Would you agree? In fact, I would say... Throughout all human cultures, all human history, there are no cultures, there are no nations or people groups that live up to God's standard of love, honor, and respect for women. That's the big idea of where we're going today is the the, the pages of the Bible from front to back show us that God demonstrates deep love and honor and respect for women. And wherever the true gospel of Jesus flourishes, women flourish. That's where we're going today as we look at these extraordinary women in Judges chapter four. So let's dive right in. Like I said, a lot of ground to cover. Verse one, the people of Israel, stop me if you've heard this one. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud, the left-handed judge from the right-handed tribe that stabbed the sword. Well, you remember it. It was pretty gross uh, last week. Verse two, the Lord sold them, the people of Israel, into the hand of of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. This 20-year oppression is the longest period of oppression that we've encountered, encountered so far in the book of Judges. They are really enslaved. They're really oppressed. We also see that there's uh, 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 Jabin, the king, and Sisera, his commander. Jabin is the one who kind of rules over everything, and Sisera is his commanding officer who goes out and beats up the people and rules. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, the the emperor and Darth Vader, right? Uh, Or at least in my interpretation. It's it's there in Hebrew. You got to trust me. Uh, But the other thing that you see is he's ruling through superior military technology. 
900 iron chariots. It's actually called out multiple times in this story. These are wooden chariots that are fortified or covered with iron as protection. Their, their wheels are probably strengthened with iron. This is the, the panzer tank. This is the, this is the Humvee. This is the superior military technology. In fact, if you read ahead into Judges 5, which is kind of a poetic retelling of the same story in Judges 4, it says, when the people of Israel went to go into battle, they couldn't find a sword among thousands of men. So here the people of Israel are subjugated because they have inferior military technology. Keep going. Verse four, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. That's a good place for someone named Deborah to sit between Ramah and I'm sorry, I'll put a a dollar in the dad joke jar later Uh, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, this is a very interesting moment in the story. In the book of Judges, we've seen only male leaders so far, but now the story pauses and highlights Deborah. What can we know about Deborah? A couple things. The first thing, her name in Hebrew means honeybee. And I like that, right? Well, yeah, you think, oh, like that's cute. I think like floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee, right? So she's got some toughness, maybe some sweet and toughness there. Um, But that's what her name means. The second thing we can see is that she is a prophetess. Now, this is not unheard of. It's a little less common. Um, The majority of the prophets in the Old Testament were men, but there are several women. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was a prophetess. Huldah, uh, later in the the story in Chronicles, she's a prophetess. Uh, And and a prophet or a prophetess, I know that maybe sounds like kind of an imposing word to our ears, but it simply means one who speaks for God. One who speaks God's truth. And so when we open the scriptures and we speak the truth of God, we are, in a sense, practicing a type of prophetic speech. But in the Old Testament in particular, there were very stringent rules for prophesying and speaking for God. In fact, uh, one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that specifically means you shall not speak on behalf of God if you don't know what you're talking about. The prophets were tried, they were tested. If their prophecies came true, wonderful. If their prophecies did not come true, they were put to death. That's how serious God is about the honor of his name. Don't go out there and say you speak for me if you don't know what you're talking about. The third thing we can see about Deborah is she actually is a judge. I know I have belabored the point in the last few weeks where we see these judges. They're not judges with a robe and a gavel. They're they're military leaders. They're tribal chieftains. But in this case, Deborah is the exception that proves the rule. She is sitting in a place, uh, the palm of Deborah. She's in a seated position. That was a leadership position, a judgment position. And people would come to her to have their cases decided. It's actually, uh, there's a striking parallel to Moses being a prophet and being one who sits there and, and uh, decides between disputes. That Moses is described that way in the book of Exodus. Deborah is described that way here in the book of Judges. The fourth thing we know about Deborah, she is the wife of Lapidoth. So she is arguably the most important person in all of Israel, and yet she still has that familial connection, and her husband is Lapidoth. But there's something interesting kind of happening behind the scenes here. Uh, one commentator, Carolyn Pressler, points out that married Israelite women were normally identified by the name of their husbands. Deborah is the wife of Lapidoth. The word translated wife also means woman. It's, it's true. It's the word isha. It's kind of like, you know, my wife or like my woman, you know, like on Valentine's Day, right? Lapidoth literally means torches. So the phrase that's translated, the wife of Lapidoth, could also be translated, fiery woman. 
The storyteller's audience would have heard both meanings and would have enjoyed the play on words identifying the independent, spirit-filled Deborah. I like that. And number five, the last thing we can know about Deborah, and I'm cheating a little bit looking ahead to chapter five, but it says that she was like a mother in Israel. That she, in a time where where the book of Judges says over and over again, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I kind of get the sense that Deborah's like this mom who kind of raises up and says, hey, knock it off. Come on, let's do what's right before the Lord. Come on, let's follow God. Hey, you two are fighting, let's work this out. Come on, she's, she's a mother in Israel and she is given a place of extreme honor and respect and value and worth, which leads me to my first point that I wanna draw out this morning is this. Good leaders are hard to find. Good leaders are hard to find. Now, so far in the book of Judges, we had a couple of weeks of prologue looking at the overview. Last week, we had Othniel's a good leader. Ehud's kind of an unusual, surprising, left-handed assassin leader. Shamgar was kind of a poor farmer, who knows, weird kind of leader. Deborah is a great leader. She's a good leader. How do we know she's a good leader? Well, she says she's judging with wisdom. She's a prophetess. She's empowered by God. Um, it, here's something. She's available. It says she's sitting under the palm of Deborah in the hill country of Ephraim. If you look at a map of Israel, that's like right smack dab in the middle of the nation. She is available to all of the people of Israel. How many of you know a good leader, a good boss is someone who's available that you can actually get a hold of? She is a good leader. Now, I don't mean to depress you, but enjoy it this week because afterwards it's going to go downhill for the rest of the book of Judges. We're going to see progressively worse and worse leaders, people who are uh, less committed to God, less available, less courageous than Deborah. Good leaders are hard to find. And I would submit to you that it's not only true of the people of Israel back then, it's still true of us today. In the United States of America, we have seen at least 40 or 50 years worth of political scandals, corruption in business, CEOs, uh, you know, milking the profits for their own personal gain. We've seen church scandal after church scandal where pastors are either uh, fleecing the flock, taking money secretly that doesn't belong to them, or God help them, what's worse, using their position of influence and authority for abusive purposes, whether that be emotionally or even sexually. We live in a culture where people are largely jaded against leaders. We have a kind of natural suspicion towards leaders, probably ever since uh, the presidential scandals of Richard Nixon. And good leaders are hard to find. But how many of you know, people want to find a good leader. We crave leadership. We're built for leadership. We need leadership, but good leaders are hard to find. Let me ask you this. Where do you have a position of influence, leadership, and authority? Maybe you're not a CEO of a company. Maybe you're not a senator or a a judge or a president. Maybe you're not an elder in the church, but you do have somewhere that God has given you a place of leadership and influence. Where is it? And let me ask you another question. Are you seeking to be a good leader? Are you seeking to grow in your ability to lead? Are you seeking to lead with Christ's heart of his servant heart, his humility? Or are you seeking to lead for your own profit, for your own status, for your own betterment? Where do you have leadership? Listen, there are some people that have a unique, special gift of leadership. That's in the Bible. We know that. You look at them like they're just a leader. They walk into any situation and within 20 minutes, they've just taken over the whole thing. Okay? Okay. But 
You might not have that gift, but you do have somewhere where God has called to lead. And I would submit to you, good leaders are hard to find. God wants his people to grow and to be good leaders. Amen? Deborah's a good leader. And we need to honor her as such. Verse six. So she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali and said to him, by the way, good leaders also find people to supplement their weaknesses, right? Deborah doesn't just try to do everything. She, she gets Barak. Hey, he's this military leader. He's from this other region in, in the, the region of Naphtali. That's the, the city of Kadesh in the, in the region of Naphtali. I need Barak to help me with this. She said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera. Ooh, so Deborah says, I'm going I'm to get him to come out. You know, I'll be, the, I'll be the target. I'll be the distraction. I'll do the play action run. And I will distract uh, Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went with him. So Barak, whose name means lightning, which is just cool, he's a good leader too. He goes and rallies 10,000 people. Let's go, let's get the soldiers. 10,000 men who, by the way, know that they're going up against Sisera and the 900 chariots of iron. So Barak must be himself a pretty compelling leader. Now, there's a point of uh, diversion at this point in the story. There are kind of competing opinions on what's happening here with Barak and with Deborah. So the two perspectives, one is more negative and one is more positive. The more negative perspective says that Barak here says, okay, I'll go, but like, I'm kind of scared and I need mama Deborah to hold my hand. And if she doesn't go with me and wipe my nose and take care of me, I'm not going to go because I'm kind of fearful and scared. She's like, okay, fine, I'll go with you. But because you're a big chicken, the glory is going to go to a woman, not to you. Uh, I know that's, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but how many of you have heard some version of that you know, that understanding of the story. You ever heard that? That Barak is fearful and not wanting to go with Deborah. And so because of that, he doesn't get to be the hero of the day a woman will. But the more positive viewpoint on this is that actually Barak is not demonstrating fear here. He's demonstrating faith. He's going to Deborah, who is a prophetess. She is the one who speaks for God. When, when Barak says, if you will go, I'll go. But if you will not go, I will not go. He's almost verbatim quoting Moses, who said the same thing to God before they went into the promised land. He said, God, I want to I go into the promised land. But if you're not going to go with us, we're not going to go. We need you. You have to empower us and help us and strengthen us. And, and then Deborah responds, well, of course I'm going to go. Surely I will go. Certainly I'll go with you. I, I just want you to know know that the glory is not going to go to you, Mr. Commander of the Army. You're not going to get the glory. God's plan is to give the glory and the honor to a woman. That's a more positive assessment of Brock. Anybody here heard that assessment or that version of the story? Very few, like two. Okay, so we know which one's the more popular one. Here's the thing. I don't know. <laughs> and I say that to you because I have my opinion 
I, I have often, I used to hold the position, the more negative assessment of Barak. As I've studied on this passage the last two weeks, I have actually changed my mind. And I think that Barak is demonstrating faith here, partially because he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12 as being a man of great faith. I could be wrong, but here's the point, Sound City. You ready for the point? God's people need to study the scriptures for themselves. Okay? There are certain things um, that there are closed-handed issues. These are essentials for salvation. There are other issues where it's like, hey, this is, this is an open-handed issue. We could kind of see this differently, have some different perspective on it. The other thing that's important for you to remember is the word of God is inspired and infallible and perfect, and the Aaron Gray is not. I get an amen from my wife, right? The, this, this, this book, this is the word of God. And it speaks truth. It speaks life. My sincere heart, my goal, my desire is to teach you the truth of God's word. But I tell you what, I am imperfect. I am fallible. I will make mistakes. I am also thankful that we live in an age where you can literally on your phone carry around every single translation of the Bible and a little man in there who will read it to you on audiobook. And we have podcasts, and we have Bible teachers, and we have websites, and we have commentaries, and we are spoiled. Amen? Amen. A few years ago, um, about six or seven years ago, I really was diving deep into theology, reading lots of commentaries, listening to lots of podcasts. And there was a point when I believe the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and convicted me that I was spending more time listening to people talk about the Bible than I was spending reading the Bible for myself. This is a side point. It's not direct. It comes out of this, how do we interpret this passage? Read the Bible for yourself, Sound City. I'm thankful for the opportunity to teach you, but trust not in man, trust in God. My, my heart, the other elders' heart, we want to serve you as best as we possibly can, but we will make mistakes. The word of God is perfect, okay? Continuing on. Verse 11. Now you remember, we got this, this battle. He went and got his 10,000 men. They gathered at Mount Tabor. The battle is ready to go. All the tension is there. We're, we're ready. And then all of a sudden, verse 11 happens. There's this random story. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites. And you're reading the story like, wait a minute, what? Who? Where did, this, where did Heber come from? And why did his mom name him that? The descendants of Hobab. Oh, well, he comes from weird named people. Okay. The father-in-law of Moses and had pitched his tent as far away as the Oak of Zaanim. You all know the Oak of Zaanim, obviously, which is near Kadesh. So you're reading the story and then all of a sudden like, left turn, you kind of get the needle scratch. What in the heck just happened here? It's going to become important in just a minute, but the Kenites, we've seen them a few times. These are relatives uh, that actually came through Moses' wife's family. These are not Israelites, but they have been adopted into the family of the people of God and get to enjoy the blessings of the people of God because they trusted in the God of Israel, which just again goes to show that God's plan has always been to include people in his family from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So there's this random detail. This guy, Heber, decides, I, I can't get along with my people. I'm going to pack up my U-Haul and move out to the middle of the desert and just set up shop. And we're kind of left like, wait a minute, what in the heck just happened there? Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kaishan. Now we're just given all these you know, mountains and rivers and locations. And again, you're kind of looking through this like, what is with all the extra details, Judges writer guy? Here's the thing. There are things happening here behind the scenes that we wouldn't have noticed in our earthly perspective. Let me read from uh, 
scholar Cheryl Brown, she says this, we might find ourselves asking, who cares? But this kind of backtracking is common in Hebrew narrative. And far from being superfluous, the information is important in setting up the events that will follow. The fact that the author draws attention to it out of place, as it were, serves to highlight its importance even more. We can see in this unusual movement of the Kenites, God's sovereign hand at work, which leads me to the third point I want to make this morning, which is this. God is always providentially working through things that look like to us just ordinary means. You and I, we have a two-dimensional perspective. We have a flat, horizontal perspective, but the Bible says that God knows the ends from the beginning. He sees all things. This random move of Heber the Kenite out to the tree in the middle of the wilderness and these random rivers and mountains, these are not ancillary details. These are not unnecessary details. We're going to see in a minute that God has been orchestrating the deliverance of his people all along through something that looks like just kind of normal, run-of-the-mill, ordinary, everyday stuff. Friends, I believe in the miraculous. I believe our God is a supernatural God. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? God does miracles. God does heal people. But the majority of what God does all the time is he works through ordinary looking means to sovereignly and providentially bring about his perfect will. And I would dare say that if you and I had the opportunity to get God's perspective on things, I think our attitudes would shift. I think our choices would shift. I think our behaviors would shift. Have it just really quickly. How many of you have ever had one of those things where just something happened, you met some person, some whatever random detail, and then like the next day or the next week, you look back, you're like, oh my goodness, God was totally working through that. Anybody ever had that experience? That stuff's happening all the time, friends. We don't see it. We don't get it. But I would encourage you to remember that in the economy of the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as just ordinary means. Our God is sovereign. Now we get to the victory. Verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, get up for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. I like up, like get up. Like that sound, that, does that sound like anybody else's mom here? Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him and the Lord routed Sisera. Who gets the credit for the victory? The Lord routed Sisera. That word routed could also be translated through into confusion, like royally messed them up. Like in the, the words of the great theologian, Freddie Mercury, kicking their can all over the place, right? The Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Like just don't miss the point. All the chariots, all the army. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all, again, all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. The Lord worked a decisive victory. Now, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit by looking ahead into Judges chapter 5, but we don't see it uh, explicitly told here in the narrative version, but we do see it explicitly stated in the poem that's coming up uh, next week that we're going to study that they're near this river, the river Kaishan, that gets mentioned a bunch of times. We have to assume it was the dry season because you wouldn't take chariots out to a river. But when you look at Judges chapter 5, it says that the heavens dropped and the clouds dropped water in verses 4 and 5. If you look in verses 20 and 21, it says the torrent Kaishan swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kaishan, march on my soul with might, which is just a great line we need to put in a worship song somewhere. The Lord made it rain, and what 
used to be a great military advantage of these chariots of iron, all of a sudden became a huge disadvantage and the 10,000 men of Israel were able to go and rout the people of Canaan. Isn't that amazing? You know, actually, to this day, in parts of the world, in the Middle East, uh, you can have a, a torrential downpour that will then render even our great modern military might, like a Humvee or a tank, utterly useless. I've, Kyle and Michael, who are on staff of our church, both veterans, both have served tours overseas in the Middle East. They agreed with me. I didn't even pay them 20 bucks. They told me that it's actually true to this day that even with all of our great technological advantages, something as simple as a rainstorm can completely wipe you out. Isn't it amazing how God does that? God, God brings about a victory. Oh, look at these guys. They're all prideful about their chariots. Water droplets. And then he just takes them out. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's our God. That's our God. Now, here comes the dramatic ending. I'm going to get to the point. Verse 17. Sisera fled away on foot because his chariot was stuck to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Oh, okay. Here comes Heber. Whoa, what happened here? Oh, he's running away, trying to escape. Oh, there's a tent. Oh, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. I don't know what treaty they've got there, but he's like, oh, these people, we've got some sort of a treaty. We're going to be safe. And Jael, this woman, she came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. I love that. Don't, 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 don't be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. Maybe he's trying to hide. Probably a, a goat skin or a sheep skin. So, you know, a warm rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. Does she give him water? No. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. She's like, poor soldier man, you're so tired from here. Has a blankie and here's a bottle of milk and get cozy. Come on in, buddy. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Let me pause for just dramatic effect for a moment here. Uh, I want to show you a picture of one of these hammers. Is it working there? So this is an actual ancient artifact from that region of the world, from that time period. Next picture, here are a few artifacts, some knives, things, but there's an actual tent peg there in the middle, right? Uh, a nice, sharp, pointed ending. You should know that in this time period in the world, in this culture, the, tent, the, 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 the hammering in of the tent stakes was considered, stereotypically, a woman's job. This is, the, this is the job of the woman. The, the men would be out tending to the flocks. The women would stay at home. She's a stay-at-home mom. She's a stay-at-tent mom. And she is, she is well-versed with, wham, getting the tent peg and the hammer uh, in place, so to speak. Then, here we go, verse 21, she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And get this, so he died. The most unnecessary verse uh, in the whole book of Judges. She nailed it. I mean, just great job, Jael. Sorry, I'll put a dollar in the dad joke jar later. And behold, I, I apologize deeply. As Barak was pursuing Sisera, 
Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And it's not there in the Bible, but I just kind of expect Jael goes, and yeah, you're going to clean this up and walks out. That's, that's my own personal interpretation on the matter. There is Sisera chasing after, or Jael, or uh, Barak chasing after Sisera goes into the tent of Jael. There's the great military leader, Darth Vader, with a tent peg driven through his skull, lying dead. And thus the honor doesn't go to Barak, the captain of the army, the one who led the 10,000. The honor didn't even go to Deborah. When she gave that prophecy earlier, the honor will go to a woman. At that point in the story, you just assume, oh, it's going to be Deborah. She's this great prophetess, this great judge, this great leader. No, the honor and the glory went to a simple housewife, a stay-at-tent mom. Doing, I mean, this is the equivalent of, you know, in our culture, the, the housewife killed the bad guy with a frying pan. I mean, that's really what just happened in, our, in this story. It finishes with a victory over the king as well. In verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So not only did Darth Vader die, they took the emperor and threw him down the shaft and the war is over and the people enjoy peace. Now, that's our story. I want to come back to this idea though of the idea of honor being given to women. The the overarching point of the story is God's surprising use of women in places where stereotypically we'd expect the honor to be given to a man. The women here are heroes, and while Barak is arguably a very good guy, he's, again, listed in Hebrews 12 as being a man of great faith. The focal point is these extraordinary women, extraordinary leader, a prophetess, a judge who, who rallies a team together and commands uh, the troops to go and, and, and fight this great victory. And then this other extraordinary woman who is ready in a moment to take advantage of the opportunity provided to destroy Sisera. And by the way, don't have any sympathy for Sisera. He's quite the well-known uh, pillager and and even rapist. You'll see next week in chapter five, it says that his mom is poetically, his mom's waiting by the window. Why is, why is Sisera not coming home? Oh, maybe, you know, it's because they've got one or two wombs for every man, meaning there's a woman or two for every one of these soldiers to be uh, having their way with. So don't feel too much sympathy for Sisera. The Bible rightly praises Jael for administering God's justice in this case. You know, the accusation by many in our culture is that the Bible is anti-woman. People in our culture think that the Bible has been used to put down women, to denigrate, to devalue, and to subjugate women. Not to lift them up, not to empower them, and to uh, uh, give them strength and honor and dignity. And you guys want to know the reality, the truth? It's been unfortunately true far too often. We, the church, the people of God, in 2,000-year history spanning every continent on the planet— We don't always have the best track record when it comes to valuing and treating women. And like I said, every every culture, every nation has its own hypocrisy. And the problem is, is that at times, the church has let the culture drive their understanding of how to treat and to honor and to love and to value women instead of letting the scriptures, the word of God, direct us in those ways. And here's, here's part of the problem is there is a tension in the Bible. There's a tension. How many of you know uh, we don't like tensions? <laughs> we like to prefer, no, this is the ditch I would like to drive headlong into, please. I don't, I don't want to pay attention to the other side. I want, I want this side of the tension. Here, here's the tension, and this will be my, my last point for the day, and it'll be a, a lengthy one, but it's important. My fourth point for today is this, that men and women are equal, 
but not interchangeable. The Bible would teach that men and women are equal, but not interchangeable. And you guys can probably already see where I'm going with, with various sides of, of, of people who would argue one side or the other, but it's hard to live in the biblical tension. Let me show you what I mean biblically. The Bible highlights the beautiful equality between men and women in a few particular areas. First, the Bible highlights that men and women are equal image bearers of God. This is in the very first chapter of the book. It says, God created mankind in his image and likeness. Male and female, he created them. This means that it takes both men and women together to image and reflect the goodness and the glory of God. Now, granted, we are broken and we are sinful and we're fallen. We don't do it perfectly. But men and women, you need to hear that you are both equal image bearers of God. In fact, so much so, we're so interdependent in that that if we were to remove all of the men from planet Earth or all of the women from planet Earth, we would not be left with 50% of the image of God, but zero. Because we need both. We need both. Men and women are not only equal image bearers of God, men and women are equal heirs of salvation. Many, if not most, world religions teach that women, for you to somehow go to heaven, for you to somehow have salvation, it's dependent upon what your husband does. It's dependent on what your daddy does. If the man who's in charge of your life does X, Y, or Z, then yes, you get to go to heaven. I actually had some people who believe that knock on my door yesterday and come to my house and spend some time talking. And then after about 15 minutes, I'm like, I can't anymore. I got to go figure out the rest of my sermon, preaching about men and women. Please leave before I disqualify myself from ministry. So I'm, I'm kidding, I wasn't that irate, but thinking about it made me irate that, that you women would be told you don't get salvation, you don't get to go to heaven unless your husband gives you enough babies. The beauty of the gospel is that it says, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, male or female, if you place your trust in Jesus, his death on the cross, his blood that was shed for you, his resurrection from the tomb, if you place your faith in him, if you repent of your sins, then it does not matter what your husband, your wife, your mommy, your auntie, your cousin, or your dog does, you receive eternal life. You are an equal shareholder of the inheritance that Jesus purchased with his blood. That is shocking. That is subversive because in particularly the, the cultures where the Bible comes from, men only held property rights. Women did not get to receive shares of the inheritance, but Jesus says, place your faith in me, my death, my resurrection. You get a full share of the inheritance, the same as Jesus Christ. God's love, God's mercy, God's salvation, eternity in heaven with him. Is that good news to anybody this morning? The gospel says you're equal recipients, not only of his image, but of his grace. And then third, of his gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 are the two most prominent New Testament passages that talk about spiritual gifts. And I've read them both multiple times, extensively studied them, and I have come to the very important conclusion that there is not one set of uh, important gifts for men and then a second set of leftover gifts for women. No, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Spirit gives gifts to all as he sees fit. So the Holy Spirit gives gifts of administration and leading and teaching and hospitality and wisdom and knowledge and discernment to both men and women. Now, no one person has all of those gifts, so we need one another. Amen? 
But I can tell you that this is one of the places where um, abuses have happened, where there have been certain gifts that have been looked at. Those are men's gifts. Leadership, that's a man's gift. And so you women need to be relegated to non-leadership sorts of roles. Some of the best leaders I know are women. And Deborah would stand as a perfect example of someone who is empowered by God to lead. She is only spoken of positively in the scripture. She is serving in a role of prophetess and judge, even while, we'll get to this in a minute, even while she's still identified as the wife of Lapidoth. There is a giftedness there. So men and women, there's this beautiful equality, and yet there are also some beautiful distinctions and differences. The first of which would just be biology. Uh, I'll give the best, like, no-duh, you know, points for this part of the sermon, right? Men and women are created different biologically. When you look through the creation account of Genesis 1, you see that there's this, this kind of beautiful symmetry that God has woven into the fabric of the universe. He says, you know, he creates the sun and the moon and the day and the night and the dry land and the seas and the animals that fly and the animals that swim and the man and the woman, that there's a, a balance, there's a symmetry, right? As it's, as it's been said, it takes two to make a thing go right. It's quoting all the theologians today. Those of you who have had the birds and bees talk with your parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's, there's different biological functions. Women, you have been given a gift by God, the gift of a womb that can carry a child to term and then can nurse and feed that child, uh, nourishing it, keeping it, raising it until such time as it's weaned. Do you realize, like, I know some of you expectant moms, you know, you're like, that doesn't sound like a blessing right now. You're seven months in and you're just mad, just so much anger. (laughs) But there is a beautiful gift, a beautiful design of God in your femininity that is something that I as a man, we as men, we don't have, we don't fully understand but we want to value and champion and honor. If you look in the Song of Solomon, um, there's a passage where the wife praises her husband's strength and his beauty, and where the husband praises his wife's beauty. They're very different lists. At the point, at the, at the risk of belaboring the point, I know that we, um, in our culture, are again, having arguments about definitions of gender and biology and sex and all of those things. There's a beautiful symmetry woven into the way that God created the universe, male and female, he created them. The second way that the Bible talks about distinctions is that of role. And I want to say from the outset, this is the one that has again been often misused and mishandled by the church throughout our history. But just because something has been misused and abused doesn't mean we just throw it out. Amen? The Bible would say that there are two specific areas, two roles that he in his sovereignty and in his goodness and love has said, these are roles that I want men to serve in. And those two roles are in the marriage relationship, the man is to take a role of leadership. And in the church, in the one office that we call elder or overseer, that men are to serve in that role. In the marriage relationship, we see that most clearly in Ephesians chapter five, that, that a husband is to lovingly lead his wife, and then it also says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, husbands, you need to understand that when the Bible gives you a position of leadership and authority, that does not mean that you make all the decisions, 
That does not mean that it's your way or the highway. It does not mean that you thump your chest and say, woman, you're supposed to submit to me. That is all a a farce. That is a joke. That is an anemic and pathetic picture of what true leadership is supposed to look like. Godly biblical leadership looks like Jesus, the one who took on the nature of a servant. In Ephesians 5, it says that Jesus, in his leadership, sacrificed himself for us. Husbands, you are to sacrifice yourself for the betterment, for the flourishing of your wives. And and let me just, can I just demystify leadership in the home? Sometimes, especially men who are, maybe you're a more quiet or a softer spoken man and you have a a wife who's a, a gifted leader and a little stronger personality, that is not wrong or sinful. Can I just say, Sam Storms, a pastor in Oklahoma who I deeply respect, said only weak men are afraid of strong women, okay? Yeah, amen. Some, I heard from a strong woman. Thank you. I don't know where it came from, but listen. You can lead by simply saying something like, hey, let's pray about that. Or you can lead by saying, hey, what if we read the Bible together? That's leadership. Taking that first step of initiation to something as simple as that. It does not mean you have it all figured out. It does not mean you're the best at everything. It does not mean you know everything. It means that you take an initiative step. Hey, let's do this. Let's, let's pray about it. Hey, let's, I, I'm terrible at doing our taxes. Let's find somebody who can help us with a budget or taxes or whatever. Ladies, that word submit, again, has been misused and misconstrued to mean keep your mouth shut, don't ever speak up. That's not what it says. Jesus, in his role of submitting to the Father, he did a beautiful thing, didn't he? He did a beautiful thing in submitting. God has given the marriage relationship to be a picture of that type of mutual submission and leadership and the dance that we do together. We're supposed to be, in the marriage relationship, a picture of Christ and the church. In the church as well, this, this one role of church eldership, that, that if you read the, the problem at 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3, we have this chapter division in our Bibles. But in the original letter, there was no chapter and verses. It was just a letter. And yes, Paul talks about women need to remain quiet in the church, but then it goes immediately to chapter 3 and starts talking about elders. We know that Paul does not mean unequivocally quiet in the churches because in 1 Corinthians and other places, he's encouraging them to pray and to prophesy in the services, to prophesy, to speak God's truth in the worship gatherings. Think about that. Is Paul manic? Does he have different rules for different churches? No. He means in this one specific role, this disciplinary teaching role that God has created in his church of the elder, the overseer, or we, we use the word pastor as well for that same office. But women... That does not mean you need to be quiet in church. Okay? All right, thank you. It means that if you have a gift of teaching and you have a gift of leadership, you need to find ways to be empowered to serve and to use those gifts. My hope and my prayer is that for my own daughters, for my wife, that I would do a good job of helping cultivate those gifts. One of my daughters has already told me she wants to write a commentary when she grows up. That's awesome. If she does, I'll use it when I preach, if I'm still preaching by the time she gets done with it. Now again, our culture bristles at this idea of distinctions because of abuses. Because there have been hurts, because there have been misuses of it. But I believe that in in God's economy, there's something really beautiful to be seen. Um, I'm going to quote from Kathy Keller. You've heard me quote from Tim Keller, her husband, a number of times. Kathy Keller wrote a book on gender roles within uh, the church. 
And she is someone who herself, she went to seminary, she has a master's degree, she was actually being prepared to be ordained in uh, the Presbyterian, one of the Presbyterian denominations that ordains women. Then they moved to New York and she came to her conclusions about the complementary roles between men and women in church leadership. She says in the introduction, she says, I've been called a raving feminist because I encourage women to teach and lead and I do so myself. And I've been called self-hating and worse because I continue to believe that God gave us a good gift when he created complementary gender roles for men and women. I always say if you're getting yelled at by people on both sides of the aisle, you're probably doing something right, okay? Let me quote from Kathy Keller The glory of gender roles for me is that everyone gets to reveal an aspect of Jesus' life. Jesus, in his servant authority, dying in order to bring his bride to spotless purity, has redefined authority and has demanded that his followers do the same. And Jesus, in his submissive servanthood, taking on the role of a servant in order to secure our salvation, shows that his submission to the Father was a gift, not something compelled from him. At no time is his equality with the Father ever called into question. Read John 5 through 9. Everywhere, Jesus is claiming to be God. Before Abraham was born, I am. And yet, the Son can do nothing by himself. He only can do what he sees his Father doing. Nevertheless, he willingly assumed the role of a servant for the purposes of accomplishing our justification. Men and women both have a part to play, a role to play in showing the beautiful story of God's redemption. And when I think of the story of redemption, I'll close with this. I think of the lineage of women that God used throughout the pages of scripture to bring us to this moment right now. If you're a Christian, if you're saved, you're the result of, of a great many women throughout thousands of years of redemptive history, being faithful to their calling and using the gifts that God's given to them. You know, in in most of the literature of the ancient Near East, you don't find the names of women recorded, but in this book, you find women from cover to cover being given places of honor and value. I think of Eve, even though she's the one who ate of the fruit, God gave the promise not to Adam, God gave the promise to Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent with his heel. The promise of the gospel went to Eve, not Adam. I think of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the one who laughed because she was so old and the angel said, I'm gonna give you a baby, but then God had the last laugh when she did give birth to Isaac. I think of Leah, the unloved wife of Jacob who gave birth to Judah, the father of the tribe of Judah, the one whom kings come from. I think of Rahab, the harlot from Jericho who welcomed the spies in and then was grafted into the people of Israel. And even a foreigner, a Canaanite, a woman from Jericho became an ancestor, not only of King David, but for us, an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. I think of Huldah, the Old Testament prophetess, who when the the book of the law had been lost for generations, they found the book of the law. She taught and instructed the young King Josiah so that the book of the law was not lost. And we still have the Old Testament to this day in part because of the prophetess Huldah not letting the king and the people forget about it. I think of Esther, the accidental Jewish queen of Persia, Persia who risked her very life to go before the king begging that he would put an end to the coming annihilation of her people. 
I think of Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary, who rejoiced when the prophecy came to her husband that they were going to have a baby and he's going to be John. He's going to baptize people and he's going to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Of course, we think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who gets unheard of, unprecedented news in the history of the world that she, a virgin, will conceive and give birth to a son and it's going to be uh, Emmanuel, God with us. I think of Martha and Mary of Bethany and their, their brother Lazarus who became friends with Jesus. And as Jesus walked around and ministered in the various towns and villages, he would often go to Bethany to spend time with Martha and Mary to be strengthened and to be refreshed. I think of Mary Magdalene, one of the first women who discovered the tomb of Jesus that it was empty, she got to be an apostle to the apostles, a messenger to the messenger to run back and goes, hey guys, Jesus' tomb is empty. Somebody might want to look into that. I think of, of Lydia, the businesswoman from Philippi who, who was a seller of purple cloth, who was a, a well-to-do woman who used her money and her resources as a leader in finance and business to bankroll churches being planted. And I think of Lois and of Eunice, the grandmother and mother of the young pastor Timothy, the, the protege of the apostle Paul, who Paul says, your grandmother and mother taught you the Bible from the time that you were a tiny little boy and now you are fully equipped by God to go plant churches, to go spread the news about Jesus to all the ends of the earth and earth. And here we are today sitting here in the Pacific Northwest as a fruit of that legacy. Is that amazing, church family? This is the story of redemptive history. And God time and time again, shows incredible honor and value and dignity to women. I have gone way too long, but it's important. I, I'm, I am, uh, the Super Bowl's not gonna be that good this afternoon anyway, so I'm not keeping you from anything, okay? This is important. Let me tell you why this is important. Two weekends ago, there were millions, millions of women across the United States of America marching. Now I know that that's a complicated and even controversial subject, but I think the one thing we could agree on is there are a significant number of women in our nation, in our culture, who do not feel loved, valued, honored, safe, respected. So whether you march or didn't march, that's that's not the point. The point is there are some deep pains and there are some deep hurts and there are some deep wounds that even we in our vile, hypocritical, pathetic culture in our treatment of women, that God is calling us as the church to be on the front lines of healing those wounds and righting those wrongs. If the church is a picture of the kingdom of God, if the church is a preview of coming attractions, well then may we, Sound City Bible Church, be known for our love and honor and value and respect for women. Amen? Let me hear the men. Amen? And I want to do something that's bound to make somebody uncomfortable here. But I wonder if we could take a minute and pray over our women. I wish, um, you don't have to, but if you'd be willing to, all the ladies in the room, if you'd be willing to stand to your feet and allow all of us to pray over you um, as we close out this time. So go ahead. You don't have to, again, if you're uncomfortable with that. But I invite you to stand. If you're a husband and you're here and you want to um, take the wife of your hand, you can do so, or place a hand on your wife's shoulder. Uh, by the way, this is just for husbands. This is not an opportunity. Just, <laughs> I will lead a protest march myself if shenanigans happen. 
I want to pray for you women, and I want to ask God to help Sound City be cemented and firm in our convictions and our love and our value and our honor and respect for women. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you once again that your word is given to correct and challenge us. God, we want to repent for ways in which we have bought into what culture says about women above and beyond what your word says. God, would you shape us and correct us and change us? God, for the women here, the women in Sound City Bible Church, God, I pray that you would bless them and you would strengthen them. God, for the, for the stay-at-home moms, the ones working with the, the hammers and the tent pegs, Lord God, I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them as they're uh, working in the lives of these just young disciples in our midst. God, for those who are working, for women who, who work outside of the home and lead in, in business or finance or politics or the public sector, wherever you've given them areas of influence, God, may they use their gifts and their leadership and their influence to point people to Jesus. God, for the grandmas here and the, the empty nesters, would they be like Lois and Eunice and, and pass on faith to the next generation? God, using their their later years of life to have a great impact for your kingdom. God, for those women in our midst who have experienced the pain of miscarriage, God, who've wanted to be moms but have have not been able to carry to term, God, I pray that you would heal their wounds in their hearts. God, would you be even so gracious as to heal their bodies? But most importantly, God, would you let them see how much you love them and value them and treasure them? That God, the The miscarriage is not your punishment upon them, but a product of a broken world that one day, Jesus, you will return and set everything to rights. God, for those who are newly married, God, would you form them and ground them as they're just learning this this dance of what does it mean to uh, submit to and respect my husband even while I use the gifts that you've given to me, God. Would you put them on firm footing? And God, for those even in this room who have experienced the pain of abuse, God, whether it be verbal or emotional or physical or even sexual abuse. God, would you bring healing? God, would you bring restoration? Would you help the men of Sound City Bible Church to lead the way in our respectful and honoring treatment at speech towards women? And God, would you even use the men of Sound City Bible Church to bring healing where there's brokenness, Lord God? We want to be your church. We want to be your people. We thank you for these women. God, I pray that you would empower them to be everything that you want them to be in Christ Jesus. Nothing less and nothing more. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can be seated, ladies. Again, forgive me for going long, but I'm not sorry. We're gonna respond. And as the financial stewards begin to collect the offering, um, I just wanna remind you, you can give um, online, you can give, text to give. The one thing you must do if you're going to give is to give cheerfully, sacrificially, generously. Please do not give out of guilt or duty or obligation. If you're a guest, please know, no arm twisting, nothing weird. We just want you to give as an act of worship if you're a part of this church family. Even if you're not, you're welcome to give. We're gonna invite our younger students class to come in and participate, us, participate with us in this time of response. Let me read a few discussion questions for us to help us in our homes and community groups this week. Number one, Even if you don't have a specific gift of leadership, where is God calling you to grow in your ability to influence, inspire, and lead? Number two, how does God use the things that seem, quote, ordinary in our lives 
to guide and direct our paths. And if we were to see all of God's providential activity in our lives, how might that shape our attitudes, choices, and actions? Number three, men and women are equal image bearers of God, equal recipients of God's grace, and equal recipients of God's various gifts. But men and women are not interchangeable. So where might you struggle with that biblical tension? And lastly, are there any women in your life who have been particularly influential in shaping who you are today? And I would just encourage you, reach out, thank them, give them a call, take them out for coffee, whatever you want to do to love and honor and value them. Things to pray about. Pray for our church. Would you pray for our church that we would be a church that honors, values, protects the women of the church and pray that we would encourage and help our women to be everything that God calls them to be, to really, truly flourish. And pray that God would grow us all, both men and women, in our ability to lead, in our walk with God, and our desire to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus yet. We're also going to respond with a celebration of the Lord's table. They're going to hand out the elements. You can hold on to those. I'll invite the musicians to come too. We're going to sing together. We're going to sing, church. We're going to lift our voices and we're going to sing. This is what the Apostle Paul writes about the Lord's table that we're about to partake of here. He says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, we only come in an unworthy manner if we come thinking that we've come in a worthy manner. We all have sin. We all have shortcomings. So we come in brokenness and repentance and we allow God to minister his grace to us. And then we respond with singing and rejoicing. They're going to continue to pass out the elements. I'm going to pray and we're going to begin our time of singing in response. After I pray, you can Take of the bread, drink of the cup, and then stand to your feet and sing with us as we respond. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. God, we, we ask and pray that, that today um, would be a watershed for us, that we as the church would seek to follow you in all ways, but in particular, our honoring and our valuing of women the way that you do, God. I pray that as we sing and respond now, you would continue to minister your gospel to our hearts. Let us worship and praise Jesus in whose good name we pray. Amen.